0: The Legacy of John Williams, mm-hmm. celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams.
1: Hello and welcome everyone, I am Maurizio Cascato, editor of The Legacy of John Williams. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded on February 21st. I'm pointing this out because as you'll hear, uh, during the conversation we mentioned the situation in Ukraine as of February 21st. Since we recorded the episode, the situation collapsed and uh, we are now living a, a truly tragic situation that brought back war in europe so i wanted to address this because i think it's necessary to give even a more profound context of the talk that we we had uh, which is about fiddler on the roof we at the legacy of john williams offer our deepest most profound thoughts and prayers and we truly mean it for a peaceful resolution of this tragic situation so i hope you'll enjoy the episode and thank you for listening (laughs) i <laughs> Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast. I am here with my co-host and head contributor Tim Burden. Hello, Tim.
0: Great to see you Maurizio and it's great to have our guest again. Yeah, good to see you.
1: Yeah, we are here finally for the promised part two of the Fiddler on the Roof 50th Anniversary soundtrack release because we want to talk more about this stunning release and its making. So We are very happy to have back on the podcast uh, Soundtrack producer Mike Medicino. Hello, Mike. Thank you for being here again with us.
2: Hi, Maurizio. And hi, Tim. And it's great, as always, to be back with you guys.
1: Oh, thank you, Mike. And and it's absolutely great today because uh, this episode will not just go back to the actual release, uh, but today is also unique because, thanks to you, Mike, we have another very special guest with us to talk about Fiddler on the Roof. So, Mike, I'd love if you introduce our guest uh, and give the proper context for him to to join our talk.
2: Yes, it was, of course, our intention when we resumed discussion about Fiddler to focus more on what went into bringing the rest of the John Williams score to be part of this release. And a lot of it, as was the case with the cornfield cue that introduces act two, had to come from the original film material. But we actually have a much more relevant and timely reason to discuss all of that, because joining us today is uh, Andy Einhorn, tremendously accomplished uh, conductor of orchestras and of musicals. Um, we would probably have one of our two hour chats just going through his entire career and dossier. So I hope that maybe you could post a uh, biography and summary um, on the site. Yes. Um, but right now, as I said, it's very, very timely because he's in the middle of doing something truly historic and absolutely essential piece of um, the John Williams legacy, which for the very first time, he is conducting the film arrangements uh, that John Williams did um, live with an orchestra, um, first in Michigan, soon in Philadelphia, Um, right around the time, 50 years after, almost to the day, that John got nominated for an Academy Award for Fiddler. This music that has not been looked at, played, or performed since then, other than the concert suite that John and others have often done um, over the years. So he's actually living and reading uh, this tremendous scores and performing it as we speak in sort of a minimally staged presentation of Fiddler on the Roof, but this time using um, the orchestra. So after we sort of uh, work our way through our conversation, we'll be uh, getting to all that, and we'll uh, have a few um, little gems that actually aren't on the release to present for the listeners. This is awesome, Andy, thank you so
3: much. Oh, well, thank you for having me.
2: I think that it's also um, for the purposes of context, the uh, historic um, aspects of what we're doing here, to point out current events of the day, because we're all reading at this moment as we have this conversation, what is actually happening in the very region where the story of Fiddler on the Roof is taking place. We see, we've had tensions between uh, Russia and Ukraine over the past several weeks. And just today, we've seen that uh, two provinces within Ukraine, less than 500 miles from where uh, Sholom Aleichem was born and raised, is largely separatist provinces that have decided to align themselves with Russia again. And uh, it's very scary. We're talking about um, even though Fiddler on the Roof takes place more than a century ago and uh, the events of the pogroms then, here we are with uh, this very region sort of uh, at the center of world events and it's, it's pretty terrifying. We don't know how it will play out, but we've had peace through Europe really for 75 years. The collapse of the Soviet Union is more than 30 years ago now. But here we are again, looking to that very region. Isaac Stern, who plays the um, violin solos in the film, um, he's from a region of Poland that is now part of Ukraine. Joe Stein, who wrote Fiddler, and Jerry Robbins, also their backgrounds come from uh, villages in the same region. So uh, it's everything that we're talking about is in sort of the shadow of world events right now. It's uh, really just um, you know, very emotional to be talking about this while we're watching the news, and I think it was just important to sort of say that and have the context there for posterity.
1: Absolutely, yes.
2: Chaim Topol, who plays Tevia, of course, uh, in Fiddler, um, his family also came from the same region, although he was born in Tel Aviv um, and, of course, was very, very prominent in um, the... Uh, he was head of the Israeli National Theater for many, many years. And um, but well, we neglected to even mention his name in part one. Yes. So I I, th- I think it might be good to um, <laughs> We maybe, were saving it. <laughs> yeah, we were saving it. But if you have any questions about uh, him and his um the power of his performance in this movie, I think it bears a few minutes of mention. Um, because uh you know, Norman Jewison was under a lot of pressure to cast Zero Mostel in the movie who had memorably originated the role on Broadway. uh, And he was a very big, huge personality, perhaps such a huge personality that he would have been too large for a big screen. Um, And we see things like the producers and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum to bear that out. But I think more to the point was the decision to film Fiddler in Europe, in Eastern Europe. They filmed in um, what was, Now, Croatia, what was then Yugoslavia. And as we said last time, basically built accurately a turn of the century shtetl. And if you can imagine putting Zero Mostel in that environment, it may not have worked. And Jewison (laughs) really wanted someone that felt like he kind of traveled through time from that period, someone with a very old world personality. And Topol had understudied um, the part in the Hebrew language version in Tel Aviv, and then was um, cast to take over the part for the London West End production in 1967. He left for um, a portion of that time to um, join the Israeli army when the war broke out in 1967. But all that did was increase the ticket sales when he came back to London and resumed the part. And uh, Norman Jewison caught him there uh, the very last week of his performance and was shocked to find that he was only about 32 years old at the time. But there was something about him who, uh, that uh, made him write for the part in the film and made him sort of fight the Mirish Company and the United Artists who cast him. And I think um, it's a huge reason why the movie is uh, so good and uh, so indelible. And I just wonder what you guys think about that.
0: Yeah, look, I, I totally agree. And, you know, with, with Topol... But what a voice! You know the tone, the timbre. It's so you know he gets it just just right. He nails it, and you know there's a delivery which you know speaks a thousand words. You know just those simple three words, and 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 his stage presence or presence on screen, you know, is just it's so magnificent.
1: Yeah, especially the way he delivers some of the nuances that his character goes through. Uh, It's absolutely wonderful to see, because he always delivers with perfectly comedy timing. But when there is the moment to be dramatic, he, he is really very, very dramatic and in a very powerful way and not too overbearing at the same time. So in my opinion, that was an Oscar caliber performance by, by all accounts.
2: It's very interesting that um, we talked last time about how some of the songs in the film are use this sort of voiceover technique. One of them would be the um, Hava Ballet sequence and Sunrise, Sunset. But contrast that with the fact that they made the very daring move to have him actually look right into the camera uh, at the start of the movie. And so he, or shrug towards the camera. I love the moment where he kind of shrugs into the camera to kind of like invite the audience to listen in. There's something so personal and tender and intimate about it. And he could be very tender and intimate, but then he can always then he could also also lose his temper, but also I also love those asides and um, uh, to that that the audience is kind of in on it a little bit. so th- there was a lot to pull off, especially at the, at the age of thirty five when he had put up put on some weight and wear padding, and Norman Jewison would pluck gray hairs from his own beard and stick them into topple's eyebrows. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, you know and it's amazing when I look at it today, I still can't believe he's thirty five or thirty six when he's doing it.
4: Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work, how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our tradition. Every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do.
1: Mike, talking more about the, how you built uh, you know, the actual release, it's very interesting because uh, you know, Disc One presents the, uh, a remastered version of their classic 1971 original soundtrack album, in glorious sound, but what things gets really interesting is is when we move to disc two, when you build this really alternate program, filled with alternate version, But in most cases, they are actual film mix versions. So let us guide to, through you know what was the reasoning behind you know building the program the way it is, and how you find space also to a third disc where we have instead specific version that we're recording and use it on set during filming and also recovering some of the underscore material that John wrote and recorded for for the movie.
2: I'll try to get through that as succinctly as is uh, possible for me, which is not very. Um, <laughs> but to be perfectly frank about it, um, some of it was driven by the fact that the 30th anniversary edition that was done in 2001 was not mixed very properly. It threw off all of the balances that were originally intended. If you listen to the 1971 album and the film, in some cases, there were variations that were particular to one or the other decisions were made for the album and as far as i was concerned if you're remastering the album you should honor those decisions there were also certain optional lines that were put in for example quite a lot more of um isaac stern lines that john added for when isaac stern returned to anvil in 1971 to do additional work wow He kind of thought, well, maybe he's coming back. We'll give him, so so like Sunrise, Sunset and the Sabbath Prayer have violin lines all the way through. The album would maybe only use a little bit of it or the film would use a little bit of it, kind of come and go with it. They weren't optional. What words of wisdom can I give them? How can I
4: help to ease their way? Now they must learn from one another,
5: day by day.
0: They look so natural
1: together.
5: Just like
2: So in the 2001 release, there were a lot of balances that were off. So disc two alternates were by and large opportunities to present some of that again, and also to maybe get rid of overlays. Um, Matchmaker, for example, was originally done very much keeping with the Broadway orchestration. But then there were some what we call sweeteners added, like a little um, brass run when um, Cycle's running over uh, towards Hava as part of the. the verse when she's kind of, um, mocking Yenta.
4: Hubble! Oh Hubble! Have I made a match for you? He's handsome. He's young. All right, he's 62. But he's a nice man, a good catch, true? True. I promise you'll be happy. And even if you're not, there's more to life than that. Don't ask me what. Hubble! I found him! Will you be a lucky bride?
2: So we had variations, basically we had them. So it was a way to sort of put everything together and have alternate versions throughout. And uh, John really loved that because he heard uh, some of the other things that he had done and that actually had an ability um, to be presented. And uh, there was also opportunities for certain sections to actually pull out the dialogue that either leads into a song or that was interstitially in the middle of a song so that we could hear a little bit more of the orchestra. We wanted all along, of course, to find all of the underscore and everything that was recorded for the film. But uh, while MGM went through 250 rolls of MAG, nothing turned up. And it's just sort of a sad reality of what happens with assets and with what particularly befell United Artists Studios. Things were not necessarily cared for, you know, we had to make the most of what we had. So. But it, it felt, you know, like it was a little bit of a stretch to work with the film tracks themselves and see what I might extract by getting rid of sound effects and that sort of thing, um, until I checked with Larry Mirisch who said, I have some quarter-inch tapes here. He showed me pictures of them. It showed that at least one or two things on there were something I didn't recognize. So I had MGM collect them from him and transfer them, and we got them, and it ended up being all the playbacks. These would have been the versions of the songs that they actually took to Yugoslavia to film to. So they would be played on loudspeakers while the people performed and lip-synced to their own voices. And it had things like early version of the wedding procession through the town, which is based on an existing Yiddish melody. So now that suddenly gave me something to hang a disc three on, because now disc three became almost like a concept album. And the sort of quality-deprived film track extractions would become more acceptable, because they would be surrounded by these playback recordings, which in some cases have completely different vocal sections, completely different orchestra sections in some cases there are completely different recordings in another key um, such as far from the home i love which there was a big conversation about and concern over michelle marsh's voice john really said no this shouldn't be a sort of a polished hollywoodized voice these are kids you want to sit down on a rock with and have a conversation and it should have a natural quality the solution um, was to transpose it down a whole step once it was in a different register her voice sounded great with it but in the playback version it's a little bit higher and you can hear how it's just not quite right for her and you want something a little bit more natural and maybe a little bit more in her range and that was the solution oh, can I-
5: i do what i do why i must travel to a distant land far from the home i love once i would happily content to be as i was where i was close to the people who are close here in the home I love.
2: When we gathered all this material, that then became the way to organize this three disc set, almost like three different programs. It's not really something that you would listen to all in one big three hour sequence, but you kind of have three separate albums on it. Then I was able to really turn attention to the rest of the material, like the monologues, anything that basically wasn't on the album, the Tevi's monologues um, and the underscore, and use all the wonderful modern technology we have to work with the original six track from the 70 millimeter versions, which would give me a discrete surround track and allow me to maybe drop out the center channel uh, and then all the software we have to remove sounds. And so I would remove crickets and clucking chickens and milk cans and all that, as much as I possibly can, footsteps and foley. So we had like the dance that uh, Topol does with Tutti Lemko. You know, wonderful little uh, great Jerome Robbins moment there where um, it's like the fiddler a- asking him to consider if he's in fact said yes to this marriage because of money. Because it's <laughs> if I were a rich man, that's then played there. Um, these things which I didn't want to let go, I've always wanted to hear, and facing the reality that the original recordings apparently are lost to time. This was really the only way to uh, really save it. But thankfully, the has found those playback tapes. And that gave me, as I said, sort of a kind of a clothesline a t- on which to hang a disc three presentation with all this material.
1: Personally, I love. Very much the this very short but absolutely delightful cue of the wedding preparation. It's just a very small, I gets 20, 30 seconds cue, but it's just lovely. I mean, it's pure John Williams' delicate scoring, you know, suggesting a theme and really bring the audience back to that feeling, creating that connection to the to the character that we are seeing on screen, preparing for such a momentous occasion.
2: Delightful little uh, recall of the miracle of miracles, exactly, and, and then the little the little uh, fiddler motif, da 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 da, ending with that. Um, interestingly enough, in all the correspondence that was uncovered, and the screenplay excerpts, it turned out that that one of the late cuts in the film was a scene that immediately preceded that, where um, it was a grain pouring ceremony. Uh, where the, the women are brought to the rabbi and there's a ceremony where the grain was poured over her and it was cut very late, um, according to the memos. And I didn't even really know what this is. So I actually consulted, um, our friend, John Burlingame's wife, Mary Lee, uh, and she checked and, um, came up with what the, I forget what the name is for this ritual but it's very old, very obscure. So it's, it was strange to me that Joe Stein actually included it in the screenplay. And they it, obviously they filmed it. So I had actually wondered if maybe that score cue actually was only partial, that maybe the score cue was supposed to cover the scene that preceded it. Mm. Um, but uh, now that we're going to gradually get to talking about looking at the printed score, turned out that that was not the case, but it was a very interesting uh, thing to ponder if there was actually more, um, if there was more that John wrote than we actually were aware of in the film. Turns out that there were a few things.
0: And I remember, you know, the moment whenever you found uh, or you were told, you know, about the, uh, you know, the pre-score um, cues that uh, were, were found, I think was at Mirish, wasn't it, in, in the New York Library. And, you know, the, your excitement was palpable and, and it, it's fascinating as well, because we also then had to correlate with those early sessions. We had those great uh, photos by Alexander Courage's daughter, is that right?
2: Yeah, yep. whom we had on the show, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right, yes. Um, wonderful photos of that kind of uh, initial, that very first session. Um, you know, everyone just getting gathered and uh, and some rehearsals in areas of Anvil, but yeah, um, actually,
2: actually but- they did those rehearsals. Those first rehearsals were actually done at a, um, a synagogue in London, not far from where the production office in town was before they shifted to Pinewood. Um, the production okay. office is actually where the original Hard Rock Cafe is. <laughs> um, that was where the Fiddler production office was in London. But down the road there was, I think, the great Great West End Synagogue. Which had a Chagall collection, a Mark Chagall collection. So I, you know, it's an interesting choice, but it actually had sort of an environment that was conducive to starting this whole process. I just think that was a brilliant uh, move on Norman Jewison's part, or whoever thought about doing that. Um, maybe it was a simple logistic that the space at Pinewood wasn't ready yet, or just they wanted to be closer in the middle of town for whatever reason. But that's where those those, those first kind of stumble throughs and uh, dance work was. Uh, was done when they first got going mm. uh, and i think it's a theater now so oh how appropriate that's in Yes.
0: Like whenever you were saying there about you know some uh, cues in some music by John Williams that wasn't used. And one of the most uh, interesting ones you were telling me a while ago, and I can't remember if we mentioned it in part one was after the you know the matchmaker, the fun off you bars and the very cinematic finale of Matchmaker which you couldn't do, really do on stage. it's so charming with all the girls. and there is an actual cue, uh, which was unused, wasn't it? that comes straight in after that um closure, is that right?
2: right, and that was attached to the playback version and I, and we found something in the donkey in a co- in the documentation that called a donkey serenade, which is a, re- right. which yes. a reference to yes. something that escapes me, maybe one of you guys know <laughs> but uh, it was just sort of a clop clop you know to go I think, with Tevi's lame horse. <laughs> um, so again, something like that—total surprise—to just find, oh my god! It's like anytime you have a minute of something you know John did for this movie that you didn't know existed—is just a, it's a great moment. <laughs>
1: your reaction when you finally you were able to to listen to the actual orchestral tracks you know without the vocals because we are talking here about a work that for John Williams was very pivotal in terms of arrangements and orchestration of course it's important to listen to the music together with the vocals but given your the the kind of work you do so basically having the opportunity to listen to just the orchestral recording how was your reaction when you were finally able to to hear that to hear that separately
2: on its own well well for reasons that i um elaborated on in part one when i talked about the origins of seeing this at the rivoli theater in new york city uh, i have wanted to hear this ever since then and my the way my particular ear works um I could watch a movie or see a show and kind of my brain is split into two sides. And one, I'm taking in the story and everything that it's offering, but I'm also aware of what the music is doing all the time. When a movie is mixed really well, I can actually, even to this day, like say I could watch E.T. I could get totally involved in the movie, but I can actually hear everything the music is doing. More recently, I feel that it kind of gets buried and you can't really quite follow it and that's for a variety of reasons but um with fiddler i could always hear what what the orchestra was doing so while say it an average sing-along i've actually done this (laughs) sound of music when i went to bob with bob wise to sing along sound of music every everybody's singing along the lyrics and i'm singing along the orchestrations (laughs) so um that's just the way my ear works i've always wanted to hear this Um, So I kind of knew it was there, so to finally, after many, many years, finally getting this off of the first generation, what exists as the first generation eight-track tape, which has uh, three channels of orchestra, separate violin and overlays and sweeteners, and then all the vocals separate. um, Well, first of all, it enabled me to work with each one separate, get rid of all of the bad edits, even the ones that you couldn't hear, really smooth it out, take out every little tick, pop, and whatever, and really get this... Polished and balanced as much as it could be, then do the same thing with the vocals, and really make it clean. And what I was trying to make it was some sort of hybrid between a really good modern Broadway cast album and a John Williams soundtrack. And to try to find some middle ground through there is was what the goal was. But hearing the orchestra was just astounding, and it was one of when I first got it. I just made scratch outputs of it just so I could start enjoying it and hearing really what he did. Many great conductors and arrangers were good at this of knowing how to wrap around the lyrics in a very very magical accomplished way but uh certainly what uh, john was very attentive to that in in fiddler and in goodbye mr chips which we talked about in our conversation about leslie it's just as a natural gift and and um if you're dealing with good singers who don't necessarily need to have the melody line mirrored in the orchestra You know, it it somehow makes the orchestra even more interesting and um, more um, more more marvelous to kind of listen to on its own, because you just hear how attentive an arranger has to be to actually kind of come up with that and trust that the melody is going to come through, because that's the singer. The singer is the instrument. So um, to hear that separated out was great. I did debate one area where, as as we said on disc two where I took opportunity to um, remove the dialogue, the introductory and interstitial dialogue, where where possible. And I debated doing that with the dream sequence. But the problem there is if you took out the introductory dialogue, um, the interstitial dialogue wouldn't work. It wouldn't work as just something
1: missing, yes.
2: The singing, you you needed Tevya talking to Golda and you needed all that. but, uh, but that opening minute or so of the Tevye's dream sequence is a John Williams composition. So uh, as a treat for the listeners, uh, I give you my permission uh, and my blessing and my permission to, <laughs> um, to play that because I think it's something that uh, hopefully will end up on an isolated score track on a, on a 4K Blu-ray someday. But uh, we should hear it here.
1: That's absolutely a, a great gift that you're you're giving to us and to the our listeners, and and speaking of that, I think that this is maybe the the perfect segue to get uh, Andy Heinhorn on the conversation and join us to talk about his magnificent work that he's doing right now with Fiddler on the Roof in and this lightly staged production that is going on that he just debuted. We are we are speaking it today is February twenty first and. It was just a couple of days ago that it premiered in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan.
2: If I can uh, jump in before Andy takes over, just to set the scene here. Okay. As I was working on this, I did get, I, John Williams' management was asking me, where is the sheet music? And I did start looking around, and, and I would expect that there would have been a full score in the Alexander Courage Collection up at Eastman School of Music, but there was nothing there, really. And I checked various other places, I checked with other people, and ultimately, I said, I think it's you might need John's bound manuscript at his house. I said, that might be the only place where it is. And he did go there on our behalf to check some titles and things like that, but ultimately... I said, "What is this for?" And that's when I was told about this magnificent uh, project, and um, and the, and uh, that they were engaging that you guys were engaging Joanne Kane to do the work. And uh, the end result is we have, after fifty years, this marvelous new uh, engraving of uh, everything that was in John's bound bound book on his shelf.
3: Yes, Andy, welcome and and, and congratulations. Well, thank you. It's so it's such a pleasure joining all of you. Thank you for having me and. Uh, there have been so many moments, Mike, where as you were talking, I, I realized we are enormously simpatico about our beliefs of uh, music and its power and the understanding of great arranging in terms of how the voice works and how an orchestra works. And uh, so yes, as of this past Saturday evening, February 19th, for the first time in 50 years, people are hearing these charts. And my God, is it... uh, I always say as the conductor of something that I actually happen to be the luckiest person in the room because I, I sonically hear the show as people should hear it. Uh, I mean, in this case, I have singers behind me, but I'm sort of standing right in the middle of the orchestra and with the singers right behind me, so I'm perfectly enveloped in just basking in the genius of what's happening around me. Because all you have to do is just wave your arms till they stop playing, right? Exactly, exactly. Years ago, my parents gave me a shirt that said, Conducting, wave your arms until the music stops. <laughs> you know? But but in this case, uh, it's, it, my God, it is. Well, not only is it a testament to Joanne Kane and just the brilliance of putting this together, but to you, Mike, for the work that you have done in restoring the work and for allowing us to be able to really hear it and really appreciate what's there. I've spent my life conducting on Broadway for many, many years now and uh, had the good fortune of obviously conducting scores arranged by Some of the best orchestrators in the Broadway scene, Robert Russell, Bennett, uh, Don Walker, um, you know, the list goes on. Don did the Fiddler originally, I think, right? Yeah. And so when I think of the golden age of Broadway, (laughs) ironically, I think of, you know, these were large orchestras at the time on broadway when you were thinking of there's the great story of richard rogers who was producing carousel as well as writing it who said well we're opening at the majestic theater we're ripping out a front the first row of seats to add more strings to the pit that was a different time because you still had 40 people in the pit but sonically it's a different way of writing when you translate to arranging for film and you're looking at triple winds, quadruple brass, and the way that somebody like John uses percussion, the way somebody like John uses celeste or or sort of auxiliary instruments. And then not only is there the string writing, (laughs) there's the string writing. I mean, I could wax poetically about the string writing alone and the power of that. Um, And you've alluded to, uh, Maurizio, you alluded to, one of my favorite cues, the the wedding preparation, and how it's clarion, it, that it, the, that horn call of uh, with I, I think it's doubled with like an oboe or something, or it's you know it starts with a bassoon and an oboe, but it but it has that first line of miracle of miracles. I, I, I mean, it's just. The heart opens up, or when you think of uh, Mike, as you alluded to the the dream, that opening of the dream, which I, I think for my cast and for myself, it's been this—it's uh, <laughs> like a treasure trove of finding the little the little treasures that John's left along, and where you just start to see the early genius at work, and. Um, one of my, I, Mike, I laugh every time I hear it um, at the top of Miracle of Miracles. You have the about the, like, there's about 14 measures of music right before Model starts singing. And in the film, it's used beautifully over the, as he's running through the field. But to me, it is the early <laughs> It's the genesis of the E.T. theme later, because it the da-da-da-da-da-da, <laughs> and I'm just like, every yeah, time I hear bit. it, somebody in the cast came up to me the other day and made a comment about the beginning of the dream and said, do you hear Harry Potter in there? <laughs> no, I mean, we talked
2: in our, in our part one, I talked about how, you, you know, there's a whole, the world is full of people who is Jaws and Star Wars, and like John Williams didn't exist before that.
5: Right, I, I
2: do predate that a little bit, and Fiddler was, you know, to me, that's my origin story, is Fiddler, and seeing it at the Rivoli, um, 1972. Um, and I already, so by the time I heard the scores he later became famous for, to me, they already were there. Uh, we talked last time about how there's a cue in Raiders of the Lost Ark that starts exactly the same way that Sabbath prayer starts, mm. with English horn, and not long ago, a couple of months ago, I have sometimes random things play for my iPod in the car and a track came on and I thought it was going to be the first act finale from Fiddler, but instead it was Burning Village from Far and Away. Uh, they, and I thought, well, isn't that interesting because it's kind of like an attack on a village and now he's got this burning village cue. And uh, I thought, so, I mean, it really was holy, you know, a not to take anything away from what uh, Jerry and Sheldon did from this fabulous score, which we paid due respect to last time around, but um, John's contribution, he it really is a John Williams score to me and always has been.
3: It, it really is. I mean, uh, to me, it's, it's next level Broadway. Um, you know, one of the things that I, uh, because I also spend a lot of time developing contemporary musicals, I actually have been really interested in examining the underscores in particular, because I think I mean, you alluded to mixes in, um, I'm like you, Mike, I listen with one ear on music at all times and one ear on everything else going on. And one of the things that I, I, I think, uh, I say this is a dinosaur, I'm a dinosaur, but uh, the, the lost art of really underscoring emotional subtext in a correct way, rather rather than telling you how to feel, it's, it's just supporting how you're feeling.
2: Maurizio, you can't now cue the Jurassic Park theme just because he said that.
3: <laughs> but, but it's interesting because what he is doing so powerfully is what so many people try to do, but don't understand how underscoring is supposed to be used. Um, you know, even something as simple, I don't know if you all have discussed the, um, what I call the socioeconomic relationship cue in in the top of the second act and the heart flutters inside there when the when the clarinet has that da, 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 da and then it moves to the flutes and you just think oh my god it, it's like tracking all of the brain synapses happening <laughs> something so positively perfect. And that's not even to to talk about sort of, uh, you've already alluded to the, the additional violin solos in Sabbath Prayer and uh, Sunrise Sunset, but even when I think of, you know, Don Walker, I'm gonna talk about uh, If I Were a Rich Man for a second, which I think is also a marvel in, you know, text painting as it were. And I feel like when you listen to the original Don Walker orchestration, he was giving you Broadway orchestration at the time, which was to color the words when you hear the, uh, you know, the chickens squawking and the ducks and the geese and all that. It's a very literal translation. I think it's scored in a very literal way. And then when you hear what John has done, it is, artistically literal is what I would say. And, and it's it, it, it sort of ups the game, but then I'm, I'm just like floored by the, the creativity then in the string writing that accompanies some of these beats. Or there's the, the great moment where you're talking about Golda and it passes through the brass and the last beat is the tuba just sliding down, you know, and I just love that. <laughs> It's evocative. It's evocative and it's emotionally visceral. And I was saying to you all right when we signed on that I think and I, I pray that this is only the beginning of the life for these charts to be heard again because I think there is something so perfect about this work. It is monumental and not only is it prescient of what's going on in the world, my God, but this is the most universal piece to have ever been written i think i think fiddler on the roof as a as a story now watching over 4000 people experience it again and seeing how tremendously powerful this show is mm-hmm. it just works yes absolutely <laughs> it's in de- it's utterly indestructible yeah. but perfect
1: and i'm curious to know how this project initiated because, uh, I mean, th- y- y- it seems that you find the perfect vehicle to, to, to present this music again to a new audience and, and to present it under the perfect spotlight. I mean, it would be easy to do just, you know, let's prepare just a suite or a selection of pieces and perform it as a instrumental pieces in a concert or maybe have a, just a singer over there maybe doing two or three pieces and that's it instead you, you you know it's an ambitious project so tell us how how it was born how it was initiated
3: sure e- enormously ambitious is is the, is the phrase that i've <laughs> constantly used um for me fiddler's always been one of the top pieces that i've always wanted to work on as as a conductor i, I always sort of look at the orchestra world in a in a funny way because it was suddenly like you know you would see evenings of Rodgers and Hammerstein. And then you would see in the pop series, then it was starting to shift into the wave of, oh, let's do, you know, orchestra to film, let's do Star Wars, have your audience come. And now it seems like the next step of what's about to happen is there's going to be more Opera in concert and more musicals in concert. The New York Philharmonic had started; they were doing, you know, they did Sweeney Todd in concert, at which then transferred to San Francisco Symphony, uh, and then the Hollywood Bowl has started a tra- tradition of doing a, a live musical every summer.
1: They did West Side Story a few years ago, yes. I think. Yeah.
3: Yes, and oftentimes with West Side they'll accompany it with the Jerome Robbins choreography. So these events end up turning into semi-staged productions, as it were. And so through some friends of mine at uh, UMS, which is the University of Music Society hosted at the University of Michigan, they contacted me and they said, what do you think of the idea of using the student talent at the University of Michigan, which has one of the best musical theater programs in the country and present a concert musical, a golden age concert musical and tour it around with a top five orchestra in the country. And I was like, sounds great, sign me up. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it, it was a great synergy of a, of a number of presenting organizations because you have UMS, which at the University of Michigan brings in the Vienna Philharmonic, every two years they're bringing in Audra McDonald, they're bringing in Wynton Marsalis, they're bringing in everybody and so they're housed at the university of michigan and then uh and they have numerous relationships with obviously orchestras around the country around the world and because then they also have the built-in student base at the university of michigan there's an educational component that was coming along with this and then the idea was always to bring in new york and broadway professionals to play leading roles and then as it happened Philadelphia Orchestra was the first orchestra to sign up for the project to say we're, wow. we're game to do that when that happened the obviously the next discussion was okay what title is going to be the best suited for this and actually it was on Philadelphia's dream list to initiate the idea of doing Fiddler on the Roof as orchestra to film It just seemed to be the perfect moment as this was coming around that Philadelphia said, we've had this really weird idea sitting on the shelf. Maybe this is actually the way to approach it. Maybe this is the perfect property, but you know, and then it sort of went into the machinations of making sure that we could get an agreed libretto cut down because we've had to trim down the libretto to get it into a, two and a half hour orchestra service. And 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 basically, as I've said to Mike, I think with the exception of two very small cues in the entire score, almost every note is being played. And I was able to, there were a few things that I just felt I needed to pull in from the stage show. Uh, for instance, the end of the dream is not musicalized in the film, it just, the the nightmare ends and then the two of them are just in bed and i felt in a concert setting i needed a button on the number and the number the button works so well in the broadway show so i was able to ask joanne kane to with the help of going back to john because actually what what is it mike there's like a there's like a cue right after the dream that uses it almost laid out it almost routined exactly but it was like yeah. up a third so i said can you drop it down a third for me and routine this <laughs> right, well i
2: think that um they did re- pre-record it and that's on the album that sung right right that's right but uh, then they decided to not use it whether they filmed it or not i don't think so i think before they shot it because that was shot much later at pinewood they were almost finished with everything else and they decided to just use that. So underscore cue came in called Dream Epilogue, which then right. leads into that um, wedding preparation cue. Correct.
3: Yeah, so it worked. It worked well for me to be able to do it. And actually, it's funny you say that because there's a cue that I had to reorder. The one where it's called Chava takes the book appears at a different moment. But again, part of my job on this production, which was fun and also tricky, was was making sure that i could fit all of the musical beats on the broadway libretto because essentially that was the that was the task set out was we needed to use the broadway libretto because we didn't have access to joe stein's screenplay we were using what um music theater international uh licenses and thankfully i know sheldon so it was easy to to be able to go back and say these are the the trims we need to make, you know, but but again, so many of the, you know, all of like Tevia thinks on it. All of the underscoring of the um, the monologues work so beautifully to lay into this, and it's it's just one more. It is a character. That's the thing that I've learned about it is his score is a character. It's another character on the show.
2: That key little cue, uh, Chava Takes the Book, is also a brilliant little thing where it's Love it. Uh, it has the Russian theme, which is John's yes. composition, but then a yes. little bit of suggestions of the Chava Ballet intro. And you mentioned socio-economic relationship, which sort of refers back to the little dance that they do. And then in the film, it dissolves to a pear-chicken hodl running into Tevia And there's this wonderful wide shot where it cuts back and shows you, now in the wintertime, where that dance had taken place in the spring. Just amazing. Yeah. But on the Chava Ballet, mm-hmm. um, there is a um, separately recorded overlay, only part of which was in the film. And I was wondering if you're using it or not. Well, I'm going to have uh, Maurizio play it because I mean, when I heard it on its own, it makes like a delightful little um, ethereal John Williams composition all by itself. I didn't get far enough into reading the score to note if it was there or not, but I it seems it to be was. a sweetener that came later.
3: Huh?
2: And you do hear some of it in the movie, not not, not all of it. It's this.
1: This sounds like superman in some bits or even et or
2: no
3: why am i being deprived of that wow
2: <laughs> so it wasn't in the book so it's like where is it you know but i mean i know i could hear parts of it in the film but uh, i even on its own i just love it it was such a great thing to hear oh it's
3: it gorgeous amazing. like it amazing again to me that's like a masterclass in orchestration hearing that just alone like the sonority and understanding how it all works you know, it so perfectly plays
1: did you do also the the russian cavalry cue you know the the one that actually is not on the mm-hmm. is not on this latest release i guess because it
2: was too yeah, it's...
1: noisy to to restore right uh but did did you do that in, in
2: the in this presentation? yeah he's talking he's talking about kiev demonstration okay yeah. so
3: <laughs> mike and i had a funny email exchange about it i ended up using the priest and the Russian church one. I didn't have a good place to be able to use the Kiev demonstration, sadly, just because it's such a different musical beat yeah. than anything in the show. Um, the funniest part is people who came up to me after the concert and said, where was Perchik's song? Now I have everything. Oh, God. And I said, oh my God, that song. <laughs> I said. I said, nope, not here in this production, but we did actually, um, just because uh, Philadelphia kept asking for us to insert any day now into the score. Mm. Um, oh. The cut Perchick song. So I found a nice moment to actually use it, to use as a transition before for Far From the Home I Love. So it actually connects the Perchick leaving story into the scene right before Tevya and sends huddle off. And uh, it, to me, that's just like a little gem, but I don't know how well you know the Jerry Bach, Sheldon Harnick catalog, but that song is to me, the minor version of the song, uh, No More Candy from their musical, She Loves Me. Mm. It's the exact same progression. <laughs> so I keep hearing <laughs> that in my head, Well, uh, uh, but it, it's nice to have that in there.
2: I think that um, that little video that Joanne Kane put out, right, that showed a tiny glimpse of it, it said yes. transition to railroad station,
3: and it's that melody we discovered,
2: right? I love that. Which I think is a great song.
3: I, I do too. Several years ago, Sheldon Harnick did a terrific program at the 92nd Street Y uh, here about Fiddler and the creation of Fiddler. Basically, by the end of it, I realized that there were three songs that they basically wrote for each song slot until they got it right so mm-hmm. i think there's actually three fiddler on the roofs there i think are, there's yeah. three full scores somewhere yeah. sitting there's around three, there.
2: there's three there's three trunks yes
3: exactly i mean they were not you know that was a generation to me that it was they were um they were not uh, precious with the material as it were. You know, if it wasn't the right song, they got they went and did it until they got the right song. Mm-hmm. You
2: know? That just... was, was that the um, program where he actually, it was recorded, right? Where they hear, yes. they, they hear, they hear him playing like when Messiah comes and you can yes. hear the people. Yeah, yeah, that was a great moment, yeah. I
5: love I've it. I've
2: been to the 92nd street while I've been there. Cause I, as the guys know from my first check, I've got sort of a half of the Jewish side of the family.
3: Is it the right or the wrong side?
2: It's always, always the right side.
1: Is it stage? I mean, is the orchestra in front of the... Um, how, how it is stage? Is this like a regular concert seating?
3: No, so the the actors are down front. Essentially, we've we almost built out an extension on the stage uh, to give them about a 12-foot playing space uh, across the span of the concert stage, and then the orchestra is behind it. So I'm actually behind the singers, as it were, um, so that's been fun. They have a camera set on me so the actors can see in the house for cues and such. Uh, is
2: this like that carousel um, that was done It was like like that. Yeah. that was very well done. And what a beautifully yeah. um, mounted version of that show was, that yeah. was.
3: as there will as well, it should be. it is a it is a it is a historic moment, and I will say going out there, saturday night i had all of those feelings inside thinking my god i'm getting to do something that nobody has done yet (laughs) you know and i think in a world where we're so constantly we we lose sight of that and i think we forget these milestones that sometimes that were handed that these are gems and these are moments that we have to hold on to in the crazy world that we're living in right now because it is so important to document what this is we have to have this you know and may this be a lesson now that we have this created that should we be able to do this on other properties that might be asking for the same sort of treatment because it uh years ago i was doing hello dolly on broadway the one with Bette midler and like you know, we couldn't, we needed some archival material from Jerry Herman, who was still living at the time. And it it was like, nobody could find the material because I think there was such a period of time where nobody really thought to document or archive stuff. And especially in like the old Hollywood films and you just hear about music being recorded and then where are the parts, it's like it vanishes. And to me, that's so sad. And um, there's a fellow in London, John Wilson, who has an orchestra, and I'm just like this stuff is great. I, I always say to I always say to John, I'm like I want to do what you do, you know. And he was like, Well, I want to be conducting on Broadway. So I, I guess like the grass is always greener. <laughs> we a but... uh, home
1: swap. Yeah,
3: <laughs> exactly. But like, but to be able to have that facility to be able to recreate all of that material and now have it documented and preserved is, it's spectacular. Like we have to have that, you know, we need to hold on to the treasures as it were.
2: Well, of all the things to have um, you rescued from oblivion, so that it's now there, beautifully engraved and able to be performed, this would be the top of my list.
3: And now you have it, <laughs> it is here she has arrived. Lahiam
4: To a wolf, to tervier, to title your daughter, my wife! May all your futures be pleasant ones, not like our present ones. Bring L'chaim to life, to life, L'chaim. L'chaim, L'chaim, L'chaim to life. It takes a wedding to make a say, let's live another day. Think of time to lie! We raise a glass and sip a drop of snaps In honour of the great good luck and big of you We know that when good fortune favors us to touch it's it's a reason we deserve it too To, to us, us and our good fortune. fortune Be happy, be, be healthy, healthy love life. life And if our good fortune never comes It's to whatever comes Think, Think of time!
1: and how big is the orchestra in john's orchestrations
3: enormous we're going to be almost 70 wow in philadelphia because of the size of the space we were in in michigan and because of this lovely pandemic that we've all survived Uh, we were actually we had to have a smaller string count but the rest of it was as is so we were uh, i think 46 in michigan but we're going to be close to 70 in philadelphia and i'm just i i'm so excited to hear it come alive in that way because i know now all the string parts will pop exactly with the right <laughs> dynamics i didn't need to um just because again string writing techniques that it will use i mean sometimes it'll say you know half trem you know and so just to be able to balance that out correctly and
1: and especially i was thinking about the you know listening to the orchestra only tracks that mike kindly provided to us listening to the tradition opening i was wondering in your live performance how the guy who played tambourine (laughs) Went through because there is a hell lot of tampering that goes on Endless. for tam- <laughs> Like those
3: four percussionists were literally—they should be paid double for the for their work because of just everything that's there. Other thing that I'm going to say about hearing the score live that uh, that I think the film does a does a, a very nice job of giving sort of the scope of the world. But I say as a as a Jewish person, I kept saying to the students, I was like, the Jews love feeling really you know anchored into the ground, and one of the things that I think you felt hearing these charts live was actually the gravitas and the weight of the size of the score. Mm. And here, you know, when he says that, I can tell you in a word tradition, and it goes to that fortissimo two bar vamp of just a C major chord. It, it, you literally felt the earth shake. And, and and it's shocking the power of just creating that much vertical sound to be able to make that happen. and. And to hear the contrast and dynamic with something like that to then just the beautiful sheen over a song like uh, Do You Love Me. I think that's one of the most interesting arrangements in the entire uh, movie because every time Golda answers, there's this little sort of hanging chat is the best way I would describe it. But the woodwinds have these little flitting figures in there that are so... It it really helps put the question mark as she's questioning Tevia. So again, brilliant subtext. Yes. You know
2: what I uh, what I noticed there because I'm, I'm sure you probably studied the Broadway score too, but unless I'm mistaken, um, what I there are some little touches of modernism in the film arrangement of that yes. song yes. that almost sort of subliminally suggests Tevia and Golda gradually embracing sort of a more modern world. I
3: couldn't agree more. I could not mm. agree more. I, I think sure. you're so right. And I've really enjoyed finding those little touches throughout the score where I feel John is is pushing that there. Do
4: you love me?
3: Do I what?
4: Do you love me? Do I love you? Well. With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town. You're upset, you're worn out. Go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Uh, no, Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? Well. For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house. Give you children, milk your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now?
2: And you know, so much doesn't come out in the film itself and a lot of it didn't come out in my voluminous liner notes that I wrote that had to be cut down by a third. But one of the things that occurred to me just studying the movie and the music was about that relationship because we, t- we find out from that song that they've been married 25 years. Mm-hmm. Their oldest daughter is not yet 20. Which implies that she might have had some miscarriages or lost some young children. So that sequence, the way they play it in the film is incredibly beautiful because you really, even though they have this sort of little bit of bickering and stuff that they do, which is wonderful. And she stands up to him. um, It's a very strong relationship probably a very sexually healthy relationship too which and I love that that's implied you don't have to really show anything or say anything but somehow through the casting and the careful Joe Stein dialogue and then with what John brought to it and how the scene is shot basically in a peasant kitchen and in their little bedroom which in 1950 you wouldn't even dream of setting a musical scene in a room like that you know, it just speaks to just how brilliant a piece of work the whole entire thing is.
3: It start to finish. I mean, it's one of those things. Again, because I consider myself still a dinosaur today, not a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I'm more of like a Brontosaurus <laughs> today. But um, just listening, you know, just yesterday, as as I was conducting it, I heard something that. Joe Stein sets up so something so really interesting in the book that there's always these conversations of repeated dialogue like it's a very w- one two three style where you know say what is it model who is it who is it you know and the way the the dialogue plays back and forth with one another and it often is so brilliantly setting up things for later for later in the show I, I'm staggered when when the writing is that intelligent because. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I don't think we have that. I don't think we have that wit in terms of of writing anymore. And I think that's why, like, that's why to me, if there were ever a musical for John Williams to have arranged, this was the one, you know? Like, I'm not sure I would have, maybe I'm gonna say something terrible, but I'm not sure I would have wanted John Williams to do West Side Story. Like, this to me is the, the perfect marriage of of artists coming together. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. And they had considered other people before they got to him, you know? So, uh, you know, Walter Scharf and yeah. um, Roger The Edans usual and, suspects. You know? Right, right, right. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, we've mentioned before, and I've certainly mentioned before, I think influenced in no small way by his time doing, in London, doing Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Mm-hmm. and i think that that time he spent there and tremendous amount of work on that project and what he brought to it i think forged something that really enabled him to kind of really tap into this grand european tradition that infused his music and that turned him into what we you know um what we and i'd like to know uh, andy it's like apart from you know the broadway history you know, were there John Williams scores of, in general, from him that were influ- influenced to you or your favorites?
3: I mean, I'm a child of the eighties. So for me, it was, it was growing up with E.T. It was, uh, and I'll, I'll put Jaws in there because how could I not? Um, it was the Indiana Jones. And, and it's funny, I, I was actually just talking to a colleague in Michigan. One of my favorite John Williams scores Catch Me If You Can. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. remember leaving the movie theater and I went to, I think it was called, um, I think the record store was called like Warehouse Music or something. Where <laughs> you could warehouse, actually yeah. still go and get a CD. And I bought that because mm. I was blown away by that score. Mm, transfixed. To oh, me, that's like I couldn't writing. believe, because it, it was, to me, it was a very different side of John Williams, uh, you know, and, it, and it, it just completed that film. It made that film to me what it was.
2: And I personally thought, given when that movie is set, that they missed a great opportunity that he actually should have been credited on screen as Johnny.
0: Johnny. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes.
0: True. I know. And Spielberg should have known better. Like he, he knows more about John Williams than he does.
2: I just think that that would have made that, that great main title sequence even even greater.
3: my first introduction to john williams was et i really do i think that was like i remember watching that movie and i remember when the credits came up i i i found that to be a melody that for me was like a pivotal moment in my brain of recognizing the power of of creating melody and then and then translating that into you know, when I saw Jurassic Park, and of course I hear the opening themes and the strains of the theme, and I go, of course, this is John Williams, <laughs> you know, like, but said with such a, like, amazing geschrei, as the Jews would say, <laughs> but like, mm-hmm. but how he is our greatest musical dramaturg living. But how, uh,
2: how great for us 80s people um, to have been blessed with Evening at Pops, and to have him be be there to do the Olympics and the NBC News and the
3: first time I saw. I got to do this really cool thing, actually. Sorry to interrupt you. It was in 2019 for the NBC upfront. They, it was because obviously it was going to be the summer 2020 Olympics, if we all recall. Yes, (laughs) 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 true. (laughs) Woo, been around. uh, And I got a call because I had a friend who worked at NBC and he was like, we have a really weird idea. We want to have a 50 piece orchestra on stage at Radio City. And we want to play the John Williams Olympic fanfare. And they said, wow. They said, well, but but the caveat is this. And I was like, what? And they were like, well, we have to ask John if he'd be interested in doing it. And I was like, well, of course. <laughs> And they're like so are you are you okay to do it if he's if he says no and i was like yeah i'm pretty sure i'll be okay being the <laughs> here <laughs> and of course of course he said no um but we did it at radio city and uh it was wacky yeah we were at radio city and they did a massive reveal of the orchestra uh and so that was awesome to conduct that. And of course they had sportscasters and oh, what we, what I did for it that was really fun was they had the brass isolated on the sides at Radio City. And so Oh, Antiphonal. Antiphonal. Good. My good God was it. Very it good. was thrilling. The audience of all of like advertising execs who don't know anything from anywhere, <laughs> and they're literally like gobsmacked by yeah, the fact especially that somebody... those
1: opening bars in the piece you know it's like they're coming from yes. from, from the heaven
2: and this was uh, the 84 then just to clarify it yeah. was the original 90 case so I mean, now we're coming up i can't believe it on because the olympics summer olympics are coming back to los angeles mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. i i just fully expect john to stand up and conduct that
3: thing again i can't believe it's almost 40 years Oops. It's unfathomable That'll be a, that'll be amazing. Yeah,
1: and speaking of John, Andy, uh, did did you have any approach with him about the, you know this this specific presentation? I mean, because I know that John is very keen about the performing aspect of his music. So I wonder if he had any. Hey, did you have any consultation, something like that? I hey. dream
3: of the day I get to tell him about how spectacular it is and to pick his brain. I've actually met him. Um, Several years ago, I met him at Tanglewood because he was conducting a program, and I, I play and conduct for Audra McDonald, who's a Broadway singer, and she was, uh, she was singing some songs, and he was playing. I'll never, I will never forget. They did as the encore, um, as time goes by, and well, him just. Sitting did he play down the piano? Playing. Yes. and It oh, was I'm just him and just her, and I, tears down the face just listening you know like you you learn so much just by listening
5: you must remember this a kiss is still a kiss a sigh is just a sigh the fundamental thing time goes by and when two lovers woo, they still say i love you on
3: I mean, the thing that I'll say that should I ever have the enormous pleasure of meeting him and telling him what this has been, but he reminds me very much of sort of the old school uh, songwriters that I, you know, espouse Rogers, and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe, where it's all on the page. You actually don't have to apply anything of yourself. They're giving you all the tools. It's right there. And if you listen and you trust it, it works. You know what I'm saying? I think sometimes we often approach works of art and need to find what we bring to it or how to do it. But the great thing about the giants and the geniuses that we are learning from and continuing to grow from is there, it's all there when you read Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Yes. The same thing with, with with john williams it's it's on the page
2: and in conjunction with that you know, he mentioned all of the little brilliant touches we keep calling them brilliant and this that and the other but i almost feel like he doesn't really try it's just something natural that just comes out he knows just instinctively i remember a little story from related to goodbye mr chips where he wrote to someone in the mgm music department about wanting to get some music for source music That was something 1920s era, but he didn't want specific melodies, something that's a little bit obscure that he could use and they couldn't find anything. And he says, I think you're just going to have to write it yourself. And he says, okay. And then it's like, he dashed off this thing and it sounds like it was written in 1922, you know? And it's like, he just knew, I don't think he had to do any research or whatever. It's like, he just knew, okay, well, that's what that sounds like. Just something inside, you know, Um, just, just comes
3: out and the word that i would use to describe that to me is it's effortless effortless yes mm-hmm. i never hear the work it's mm-hmm. never forgive me it's never sweaty it's right, right. you
2: you listen to it and you say of course that's the right way to do it you know uh-huh. yes
1: but at the same time i think for him it's really a process of a laborious creation i mean we, we, we see the final result, and, this, and it looks like, of course, it, can, it cannot be any other way. But for him, I guess it's a very long and quiet and very laborious, as I said, mm-hmm. process of trying and writing and rewriting and rewriting again until he finds, like he said many times, you know, uh, the, the statue is within the stone. All I have to do is chipping away. remove what's
2: what you don't need yeah exactly yes
0: you know he is so uh, we know he's so humble but even you know he would say himself uh, there's a great quote he says where you know he's he's writing all night and then the morning after he's saying i wrote all this stuff and then sometimes it's unbelievable i wrote all that you know and it's the kind of thing and a lot of creative people would say that obviously he's in a league of his own but it's something where I, I think even sometimes he may may surprise himself, you
2: know. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of um, when Stephen King once talked about his uh, his super crazy fans. And he would say, you know, they don't realize that it's not me that they're a fan of. They're a fan of this thing that floats around the room, waits for me to sit down and start typing. <laughs> um, you know, he's like just the vessel. <laughs> yes. But the... Uh, yeah, John has John just, uh, effortless is just a great way of, I mean, Andy, you would have a wonderful time seeing some of the correspondence that we unearthed when we were researching the project because it's like he's, even to the point after it's mixed and dubbed, his last very long memo to the music editor Richard Carruth when he left London and Richard was the last remaining person there in the London office, and it was all about the dub of and mix of the dream sequence bar by bar he was giving instructions watch out for this watch out for that you know it's going to be working if you play the music louder here louder there and that we're not hearing all this screaming i mean it's so specific you know so the ear and i know he attends the dubs quite often um, even though you know and he, and he and he really accepts the fact that sometimes music has to be dialed out or cut or whatever Um, but, you know, he just, he follows through the process all the way and
3: just has this incredible instinct for exactly when it's right. The one, uh, well, first of all, I would love to see any of that. Secondly, the one thing that I was told was that he didn't have really much communication with Jerry Bach during the process. Yeah, not really. Yeah. They just handed him the score and they were like, here you go. Which I think is really interesting because, you know, they were both, alive at the same time so it so it's strange to me that there wasn't necessarily any sort of back and forth communication about that
2: yeah i guess it's um you know it's kind of like um you know, having the, uh, the the person who created the dish standing over your shoulder yeah. as you're trying to be in a kitchen cooking, you know, just yeah. kind of let them follow the recipe and do it. And you know, I, th- I think there was a great trust there. I mean, John's mm-hmm. track record was certainly already proven by then. And plus, um, Jerry and Sheldon were on the Rothschilds, I think, right? Their That's last. Right collaboration and any day on the way to their
3: to the rocky end of their collaboration (laughs) right yeah
2: Yeah. so i mean interesting interesting time i'm curious andy if john knew who was going to be cast when he was working so there may be something to be said for a voice as powerful as Topol when you're arranging if i were a rich man yes you know um that you kind of know what the power of the voice that's going to accompany it is. Did you find any sort of, and then of course, in mixing, you have ability to balance and and change things which you don't quite have when you're live, unless you bring in amplification and stuff. Were there any challenges in, in that regard of trying to find the right way to work your voices, work with these orchestrations?
3: Yes and no. I mean, in the in the concert hall, we definitely are having we are using amplification just because of all of the dialogue scenes and you know we have a cast of uh, 25 people up there and just trying to make sure that everything is heard because i was my i had expressed concerns right at the beginning that that i was nervous about the scope of the charts against you know we're not just taking a broadway pit band and adding strings to it I said, you know, we have something that has a lot of breath to it. So the most interesting thing that I found that Joanne Kane was very helpful with was, and, and this makes a lot of sense uh, and you already alluded to it, but that songs ended up being transposed down in I think every single case. And it makes a lot of sense for for a film that they were doing that because very often there's sort of like what I would consider like a Broadway energy where keys are gonna be a little more bright or just loud, as I would call it. And so to strip some of that, sometimes it puts it in a more conversational place if you're dropping it down a step or so.
2: Well, do you mean transpose versus the Broadway score? Yes. Okay, right. And then there's one, there's at least one case where I think you even transposed something from the film score.
3: So basically what I was doing was I was comparing the Broadway to the film. So, so I got the takedowns for what the film were, was, and then in two cases, I asked them to raise and put it back to what the Broadway, it was for Miracle of Miracles and for, uh, for Far From the Home I Love. It was because I had two students and I just knowing their voices and knowing what I needed to get out of them. They were both pitched higher so it was like okay and and so uh we were able to do it easily without too much fuss. may the lord protect and defend you may
4: he always shield you from shame may you come to be in history shining day. like roof and like Esther, may you be deserving of praise. strengthen them, O oh Lord, and keep them from the stranger's way. Sabbath prayer for you. May God make you good mothers and May send you husbands who will care for you.
2: You know, uh, Norma Crane was a very interesting choice for the film too, perfectly cast. I think it's the performance yes. of her career, but she sings in the same register as Topol. They have yes. different timbres, but usually yes. that's written for a different, an octave higher. Correct. Right? When Golda, Golda sings.
3: I've actually been playing around with that a little bit with my Golda and having her do some of it lower. Oh, um, interesting. Just because I enjoyed that in the film. Um, some of it is working. Some of it I need to look at again, just because of against the balance and you can't push the voice in the same way that you can in the in the film. but. You know the guy that we have playing uh, Tevye, Chuck Cooper. He won a Tony uh, for a show in the '90s, and he's he has a powerful speaking voice and a very powerful voice. So it's actually working very well in tandem with these with these charts. Um, and I really wanted somebody with that kind of gravitas to sing it. You know, unfortunately, I don't think we have a bevy of. Those kind of singers anymore. And tell us
2: about your uh, violinistas.
3: So actually, for uh, we for Philadelphia, we're actually using their. I believe it's their associate concertmaster is going to be playing all of the solos. For University of Michigan, we had somebody come in who had done it on um, on one of the Broadway revivals but you, you're starting with the cadenza, is that right? I am. So yes. Yeah. so wow. I have, I I said it, it was very important to me to retain every note of music and the way that I saw fit to do the opening credits bit, uh, because to me, once you start tradition, you can't then stop and play another piece of music and move on. So Joanne Kane helped create sort of what I'm now calling the Overture, which starts with that cadenza, Goes through the uh, the wedding music and all of that, and then ends with the final wisp of the cadenza, cadenza part two, as I call it, and uh, so that's the overture. And then we go into the traditional tradition, as it were.
0: <laughs> D- during tradition, uh, have you augmented the orchestra with a with an organ or a keyboard? You know, for the bit after the rabbi and blessing for the tsar and. Yes. What's the organ sound?
3: Yeah. So in Philly, we will have the uh, we will have the person playing the pipe organ for that. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, that will be exciting.
0: Please record that. I mean, that's what a (laughs) beautiful, beautiful sound. Like it's just such a. It's just it's subtle but so effective.
1: What were the most challenging uh, charts to 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 craft and to perform in terms of sheer, you know? technical level of the orchestra and so uh
3: i think the biggest challenges for the orchestra are uh, i think the dream sequence is very difficult i mean it's metrically all over the place the tempo shifts are really hard it's the most sort of broadway of the numbers you know when it flips between sort of a four four and a cut time and then you go into the nightmare scene and you're in six four and then you have the bar of seven four all of that and also just it's the colors in it are outstanding but it's one that just balance wise is is very difficult. I I felt on the stands was a challenge to get the correct balance so that it didn't uh overplay itself as it were. And obviously then the other challenge in the concert hall is any of these uh underscoring moments where I have dialogue just sort of figuring out how to make sure that all of those beats that, you know, we're trying to obviously play all the music, but we don't want to cover up what the dialogue is there. And I also don't want to, I'm not a fan of, and I was very vocal with this, with my team that I'm not going to thin out orchestration just to have the cue there, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense, you know? So it was very important to me to be able to retain the beats, as it were, and not lose that, not lose the integrity of it.
1: How, how many days of rehearsals did, did you have?
3: Very few. <laughs> <laughs> I basically had, I mean, it, it, it was pretty crazy. And I have to hand it to Joanne Kane. I mean, I think in the entire process, I've come across 10 wrong notes in two very thick bound scores um and i really only had one day of orchestra read and then two orchestra dresses and then two performances wow um so and then i'll have I'll actually only have one dress in Philly in one day of orchestra reeds there. Oh,
2: the choreography's all there, there's a bottle dance,
3: all that, wow. Well. Yeah, we're doing the bottle dance, the whole to life is choreographed, the whole wedding wow. dance, the second wedding dance. My God, I mean, it was a lot to put together and we really only had like two and a half weeks with the actors to put it together.
2: Wow,
3: Impressive. And because Please. they're students, we could only use them in the evenings. Oh, right, oh, of course. It was, a, a, wow. it was like a nightmare schedule. Wow. But it's okay.
2: Well, muzzle tough.
3: <laughs> then <And> thank you. <laughs> was such a match I
4: played. Muzzle tough, muzzle tough. In heaven, it was made. Muzzle tough, muzzle tough. A sign of standing by. A comfort and a joy. The tailor muzzle <laughs> comes <oil. laughs> But we announced it already. We made a bargain with the butcher. Keep blessing on your husband. Me, but he is a butcher. Tell them. His, his name is named a Wolf. The tailor must the council. Cha, cha. Look. Who is this?
2: Who is this? Who comes here? Speaking just one little teeny anecdote about the dream sequence, that I just just out of my own curiosity, because you know, in the stage play, the conceit really is that Tavia's, you know. Let's face it, you know, there's a, a plot point of this musical is Tevye duping his wife by making up a dream. Um, but uh, the conceit is that he's telling her this dream and the people come into the bedroom. And Norman Jewison didn't really know how to stage this. And so he decided, well, let's just transition to a graveyard, which was convenient because every Norman Jewison movie has a graveyard scene. And um, so that so this fulfilled that. But um even though you're minimally staged, um, is there anything special about how you address doing this?
3: We we are doing it as though it's more from the bedroom perspective, and so the actors are standing there holding up a sheet as though they were in a in a bed, <laughs> and so then the the Frumacera comes out from behind that bed, as it were, uh, <laughs> with with ghost like creatures around her, and the grandmother's side comes to one side, and the rabbi comes to the other side of the bed, so it's very i fun. think
2: you, you you might you might be very illuminate at least this one memo that's from John about the dream sequence considering that you mentioned the challenges of that i think you actually might uh, get some illumination from that so i'm going to send it
3: to oh, you. oh i would love that thank you the good news is now i know what the what the pitfalls are and sort of how to guide along the way you know because again if you think about it the takedown for this was really for orchestra to film so there's so many tempo markings that I have to keep saying, we're conducting to a live singer now. You know, so it, it isn't gonna be, you know, this may have been three bars that were slightly faster in the film, but we're just staying step with the singer here because we have that. And in many ways, I think that is also a really, really exciting venture to now allow the cues to all breathe. Mm. You know what I mean? because yes. you're not constricting it to a clock. I'm not constricting it to a click that's changing BPM every four bars. So in a lot of ways, I think there's a real opportunity to listen with fresh ears and really hear everything that's going on, yeah,
1: yeah, you you don't have to 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 avoid anything. You know, you don't have to renounce to be really musical. Uh, in this regard, so pardon the pun, of course, but in the sense yeah. that when you do, for example, live to picture concerts with a film, sometimes it's very hard to be yes. musical because you know the film has that tempo <laughs> and doesn't stop, and you have to to keep that. And beat. ironically,
3: I mean, ironically, as I always say with the the live to picture, none of those charts were ever created to be played live. So the really nice thing here is recognizing how beautifully these do play live. They're songs, they're beautifully crafted songs, and they have so much life inside them. And I think when, and I, you know, it, I, I'm not saying it as though like we're pulling the music apart because we're not pulling it apart, but we're allowing it to breathe naturally and not feeling like the orchestra's playing catch up in any of those sequences.
2: Well, and of course, um, you know, in film, you also have the luxury of recording pieces and cut it together later if you can't, right. so the music editor will tell you where your tempo was and you were hitting those beats exactly right and those tenths of a second things. But, um, but also it um, is reminiscent of the story about E.T., where on day one of the sessions, you know, the score that uh, was your early favorite, where the second half of the bicycle chase and the finale had all these things marked and John was not able to hit them exactly. And Stephen said, turn the movie off, just record the cues and I'll recut the scenes to them later. And so when the music is sort of driving the tempo of something, it does have somehow more life. It feels less mechanical. Um, and so it's, it's great to sort of be able to take something that is basically a mathematical equation and kind of take mm. the math out of it. Now you can kind of um, have it just You know, have to refer to the musical math and not the cinematic math.
1: Yeah, it is. uh, I think it was um, Richard Kaufman, the conductor, a few months ago, Mm -hmm. that said when when he performs that ETQ live to picture with the orchestra, when he rehearses the piece, he always says to the orchestra, "Guys, this is." much faster than you think it is. (laughs) So be prepared.
2: Right, because you can't stop and say, oh, we'll just go back, pick that up. No, the audience is there, it's going, and the the movie is merciless. It's just gonna go whether you are with it or not, so.
3: And And that's what's really nice here, is it it doesn't feel merciless in any way. It feels actually very organic, and it feels feels the way you want it to feel when Mm -hmm. you're hearing these charts again. And I have to say, I think, I think it's a really beautiful blessing for all of us to be able to hear them this way and to allow them to to live in this capacity.
2: Well, I'm certainly grateful that you guys asked the question and that as a result, this music exists. It's there for orchestras to now perform, be it to film or in concert. It's just an amazing, dare I say, miracle of miracles.
0: It is, it is.
2: <laughs> I like what it you is. did there. Thank you.
0: You see this do you think i mean will it be picked up by ing i mean will it be a, a big tour can we reveal anything yet or is it still kind of in negotiations or will it be a worldwide package i don't know
2: actually well i think the in- inquiries about doing a live to picture are certainly you know sort of on the table whether it happens or not i really don't know at this point um okay. but in terms of this um you know uh sort of minimally staged version Um, I guess it might have some uh, opportunity if other orchestras could be interested in it, Andy, wouldn't you say?
3: I I think it definitely will have a life.
2: Because as you said, this kind of thing is sort of gaining traction now because it's difficult. It's incredibly expensive to mount a full production with scenery and tons of scenery and costumes, even to do a touring production where it's all so expensive. And as you said about the size of pit orchestras, you know, you barely can afford a dozen now, really, for Broadway, you know, oh, it's, it's hard awful. to,
5: it's you know, and
2: you've been in many, many pits, I'm sure, of Broadway shows that I've seen, and I've never even known it. But um, Cinderella, I remember loving, you know, when that, when that was adapted for the stage a few years back, I loved it. Um, but, uh, you know, so this actually is sort of a way to do it, where you don't have to spend, you know, you now can afford a larger orchestra, but maybe with some, some suggestions of scenery, some costumes, whatever. And you can kind of kind of do it almost like a reading, really, with yeah. music.
3: Yes. An elegantly produced reading, as it were. Mm-hmm. But I mean, look, when I did Cinderella, I had 19 on Broadway. And then when I did Carousel a few years ago on Broadway, I had 26, you know, and that was that's considered big. For that's considered Broadway big. Now. Yeah. And, but like, I'm going to do a sound of music in concert later this summer with Cleveland Orchestra and we'll be close to 60 in the orchestra, you know? And using sort of a, oh God, I'm probably spilling too much tea, but as it were, but you know, I'm sort of creating- With jam and concert. bread. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But um, I, I think, you know, I'm sort of creating a a hybrid what I think could work as a concert version of that using some existing charts from concert versions and then with the pit parts and etc because as of now we don't have access to use the uh film charts yeah right (laughs) yeah (laughs) we can dream maybe if I put it out there since this happened I can get that to happen you know
0: Andy, I'm sure you've you've uh, got the actual album, and uh, it's it's terrific to have this uh, you know historic moment uh, certainly documented like this, you know.
1: Yeah, and I'm very glad that we sat down to do this part two conversation with with Mike and with our special guest Andy Einhorn to you know to shed more light to this project that really I think it's important to. To keep documenting and to keep talking about because you know as mike very eloquently said at the beginning is more, more than ever now now is probably something that we all can hold on to to you know as a, something very important for our collective uh consciousness for for uh, about art about music about the world we live in and so I want to thank you so much, Andy, for for oh, staying with us. Oh, thank
3: you all! My gosh, it was what really
1: a, a wonderful, a wonderful talk. To, I mean, so lovely, almost like a lecture for me, really, <laughs> because it was you know, so full of details and. You know, bound to to discuss well, probably for
2: another hour. <laughs> that was the most energizing lecture I've ever been to. No, this a <laughs> really really fun conversation, guys. I mean, it made Crazy, our part yeah. two fiddler discussion way far beyond what I thought it was going to be. So,
0: yeah, but it's it's fantastic because you know, we, in part one, we didn't know this was happening, Andy. This is what makes it uh, such a fantastic, oh, wow. uh, a fantastic extension to the conversation. no, it's wonderful. Uh,
3: thanks for the added. Of course. Well, thank you for having me. What a treat. What a treat. And of
2: course, uh, La La Land Record still has Fiddler on the Roof 50th Anniversary Edition on hand. And we're in the middle of celebrating John's 90th birthday and 50 years tomorrow from the day we're recording. This is when he got the Oscar nomination um, for Fiddler and then won his first Academy Award in April of 1972, 50 years ago. But then yeah. and and he, and he's still running us all ragged. God bless him. I should also point us toward um, the new documentary Fiddler's Journey to the big screen by my good friend Daniel Rame, which was supposed to have a premiere at the Palm Springs Film Festival, which was canceled due to COVID. But that's supposed to have a theatrical release uh, in, in the spring, so around the time we're in New York, this should be actually uh, available to be seen. And John was interviewed for it, and it's a, and it's a great fun and a, and a great. Um, kind of um, testament and great interviews about the uh, making of the film and Norman Jewison's experience doing it.
3: Well, you all are wonderful. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. Oh, this has been great. Yeah. Absolutely, thank, our pleasure. Thank you. What a pleasure. It was so nice meeting all of you. All right. Thank you so
2: much. And just uh, best of luck in Philadelphia. And I wish I was thank there you. and I know it's going to go well and- uh, Break and, a baton. Yes.
0: Thank you. Thanks, you Mike. And uh, great to meet you, Andy. You too. You too. Take care.
1: Thank you, everyone.